I'll read and you can follow along, please. In verse 1 of chapter 2, <clears throat> John writes, and he's, or Jesus is, is speaking, and John's writing the words of Jesus Christ, and he says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven gold lampstands. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you can bear those who are, you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. You have preserved and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will do the, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we have ears to hear this morning. Lord, we know there's a blessing in studying your word. And Lord, from reading and studying the book of Revelation, there's, a, there's many blessings here. And Father, we want to be those who overcome. So teach us, Lord. Give us a heart that's willing to hear, Lord, that we would apply these things to our own lives, to our own church. And Father, we would draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think we've all heard it said before that you cannot judge a book by its cover, right? <coughs> it's a pretty common saying nowadays. And the idea behind this is that the outward appearance of something may not always be an accurate reflection of what is going on on the inside. Sadly, this can hold true about churches. And a church that is housed by a large facility, big, magnificent kind of a building thing, um, you know, it may in fact contain a church that's full of spiritual death. The outward appearance isn't always an indicator of what's really going on on the inside. And, 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 and so we could look at a church who has a, a small, modest building, and maybe even a small congregation, and, 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 and see that there may be spiritual life once we go in and check out. You know, I've never had the opportunity of really searching for a church. When I came to faith, it was through a Calvary Chapel, and I've been involved with Calvary Chapels ever since. And when we moved here, we started the church. So I was talking to Austin on the mission strip as we were as I was preparing the study, and I said, you know, what would you do? Because he's been in college, and he's left, and he's gone. I said, what do you do to look for a church? How do you begin to do that? Because outward appearances may not always be a reflection of what's really going on. And we all want to be a part of a church where God's there, where God's alive, where the Holy Spirit's doing things, where the Word of God is being taught, and our lives and lives around us are being changed. And, 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 and you can't always judge by the outward appearances. And you know what? There may even be churches that do many good works and adhere to even sound biblical teaching, but there may be spiritual death still within that church. And, and as we read here and see this morning, it's because there's the, these things can be possible because they have no love. And without love, these things don't matter. Now regarding these seven churches who received each a personal message from Jesus, we see that five of the churches that we'll read about and study in the next couple chapters, that five of the, of the churches had this outward appearance. In other words, that they, they, had, they were given the impression to others around them that things were going well. 
upon first look. <clears throat> and even as you got a little bit inside, you would see things that looked to be right with these churches. But upon a deeper inspection, literally the, the, the Jesus Christ looking in beyond the surface tells us that, that there were some things within these churches that needed to be dealt with. There were some serious problems that were going on. And in these messages to the seven churches in Asia Minor, we get to see them through the eyes of Jesus, who is able to search beneath the surface of a church, as well as an individual, meaning you and I, and see directly into our hearts. And um, it's important for us to understand that each letter, as we read through these, each one of these five, seven letters that were written to the churches, they were dressed, addressed specifically to a real church. And the letter was intended uh, to be a tool, a tool for the church to deal with these specific issues, these specific problems that they were having. Jesus just wasn't criticizing them and warning them. He was giving them a tool by which they may look and examine these things that were going on, the good and the not so good, and go, okay, we need to get things right. Because often we don't know, even in our own lives, the Bible tells us that our heart is deceitful and it's wicked and only God can know it. But yet when God gives us a letter, when God speaks a message to us, when God gives us a word that applies to our lives, that reveals these buts, these things in our lives where God goes, hey, you're doing good here. You got this going on. Good job here, but there's some things here, Sean, that we need to deal with. We need to have a heart that's willing to hear, a heart that's willing to receive, a heart that's willing to make the changes by submitting ourselves to God. And it's, it's personal, it's individual, just like it was personal and individual to the churches that we read here. And there's this application here in the text for us and seeing that God was speaking to these churches personally and individually. But, but these letters also have another purpose in light of what we read here in verse 7. And if we look at verse 7, we see that, that these letters were also intended for all of the churches, not just each individual church, but for whoever had a ear to hear. Meaning, whoever had this willingness that I'm speaking about, this willingness to find out, this willingness to learn from the words of God, and we too, and other churches too, can benefit from these messages that, that were written so many years ago. This is the second application of the text. So while we are reading and studying these messages, we, whosoever, are willing to examine our own lives and look to apply these messages must take them personally as well. Now the other thing to point out is that there's, there's also a third application that I'm going to tie into this as we go through these things and study these letters to the churches. Specifically, there's a prophetic application. So you have the individual church application, then you have this, this, this application to all churches, whosoever would hear and listen and apply, but there's also a prophetic application as we see that these letters appear to also speak to the church, the whole bride of Christ, as a whole, down through all of the years. Throughout church history, <clears throat> the church which we know began on the day of Pentecost and will end on the rapture, the day of the rapture. 
In other words, as we look back upon the history of the church and we look at very various stages that the church went through, they're, they're addressed and reflected in these letters in a prophetic sense. In light of these three avenues of application, we need to remember that the book of Revelation, again, going to back to the introduction and in our study through chapter 1, that this book in total, in whole, in each chapter, it's revealing to us the nature of, and the person of the resurrected Jesus Christ, of glorified Jesus. And, 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 and as we see that this book of Revelation teaches us about the nature and person of, of Jesus, the glorified Jesus, it's also a book that teaches us about the future judgments of God, right? Something that is still yet to come. So as we study this letter to the church of Ephesus first this morning, we should take note of the fact that what we are seeing is that Jesus is revealing himself to the church, but Jesus is also dealing with judgment. He is judging, God is judging his own people before he judges the world. This is what we're reading here. Listen to what 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 says. It says in verse 17, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins first with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? And God always deals with his kids first. We always deal with our own house first. And, and, and individually, the Bible tells us that if we're going to go and, 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 and look at the, the sins of another as we come alongside them, the Bible says what we first must examine ourselves, right? We first must willing to be willing to judge ourselves. That's the principle throughout all of Scripture. We're first to remove the, the plank from our own eyes so we can see the speck clearly. And as God begins to tell us about the future judgment of the whole world, he's going, there's some things within my own house that needs to be dealt with. That's where we're at. That's what we're reading about. And in each one of these letters written to the seven churches, there are found seven different divisions. And I told you in the introduction that seven is a significant number, the number of completion. This book is a book that tells us about the completion of all things. And the number seven is represented, represented again in each one of these letters as there are seven different divisions in the letters. And each one of these letters, these messages, need to be broken down with this seven-point division. So if you're taking notes, the first thing to notice is there's always a greeting. Jesus always addresses and greets the church. This is the first division. Then there is a description of Jesus. Jesus makes a description to the church of himself. An aspect of his glorified and resurrected self. Followed by a praise. Then by a criticism. And then an instruction or an action that needed to be taken to correct the problem that was brought to light. And then, and then, then there is this promise. Always there's this promise to the overcomer. He who's willing to do these things, Jesus is saying, this is what's waiting for you. A promise to the overcomer. And then lastly, there's this, there's this call to hear. As Jesus is admonishing, as Jesus is <clears throat> pleading with the church and pleading with this this morning to hear. And as we look to the very beginning of this chapter, back to verse 1, we read in the greeting in verse 1, and, and we're given a description of Jesus here in verse 1. And, and to the church of Ephesus is who this first letter is addressed to. 
And, and, and with it, this second section of the book of Revelation begins. I told you in total, there's three divisions throughout the book of Revelation. And in chapter 1, back in chapter 1, verse 19, John was told to write, quote-unquote, these things which he had seen, that was the first um, division of the book. The, the next thing that Jesus had him write about in verse 19, he said, the things which are... And then the things which will take place after this. Three things. The things which are is the time that we are living in today, which began about 2,000 years ago, again, on the day of Pentecost. And like I already said, it will continue on up until that day of the rapture of the church. Many refer to this time as the church age, or they will also refer to it as an age of grace. And, and this is the time, simply put, that God has set aside, the, the time throughout history where God has apportioned or appointed for all men to be saved by the grace of God, the grace of God that brings salvation and, and, and this is spoken of, this time, this age, this appointed place in history is, is spoken about in many times throughout the Bible. And one such place is in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, which says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Age. And this was what we've been told that we're reading about now. Now, as we look at Ephesus in this letter that was written to him, you need to know that Ephesus was a major city in Asia, Asia Minor. And it was located on uh, the Castor River, specifically as the Castor River emptied or flowed into the Gulf of the Aegean Sea. And so it was geographically a, a significant place because there was a large seaport there. And so it, it had a lot of travelers come and go because of its geographical location. But if you read the writings of an ancient historian named Pliny, Pliny the Elder, you can look him up if you want. <clears throat> he's not a religious uh, historian. He's a secular historian. He tells us that at this time, Ephesus had a population of about a quarter million people, which was huge back then. It was also the home of the uh, home to the a, a significant temple, a Greek temple, a temple of Artemis, which is also sometimes called Diana, uh, which is considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And this temple. Uh, being one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, it was an architectural masterpiece. It was constructed completely out of marble, 100%. And um, it had 127 pillars that supported the roof structure of this Marble pillars, I mean, that, that supported the roof structure of this temple. And each one of these pillars stood 60 feet in height. 36, which were at the front of the entrance of this, this temple, were overlaying with gold and jewels. Now, Diana, who is also known as Artemis, was the Greek goddess of fertility. Give you an idea of a little bit of what was going on there. And in the temple there in Ephesus, there was a huge statue of her. And people would not only travel to Ephesus for the commerce as it was a trade route, but they would travel from all around Greece and Rome to come and worship 
this, this, this goddess, and, and they would worship this pagan goddess with temple prostitutes and commit sexually lewd acts. And according to um, what was found in Acts chapter 19, we know that it was the Apostle Paul had first come to Ephesus and founded the church there, and he had remained in Ephesus teaching for two years during that missionary journey that he was on before returning back to Jerusalem. And once Paul left Ephesus, we know that he, he, he continued to have an influence there through Timothy as Paul sent Timothy to pastor the church in his place. And when we read that letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy written by Paul, we see that, that appointment that Paul had placed, that, that mantle that was placed upon Timothy as he pastored the church there. And um, according to church history, we know that it was John, the, the, the one who pinned, who was on the island of Patmos, John, who, who's, who we're now reading from here in the book of Revelation, who was ultimately, eventually, the pastor there in Ephesus right before his exile to Patmos. So Ephesus was a, a significant city. It was an it was important Christian church there that had the influence of the Apostle Paul, had the influence of Timothy, and even the, the influence of... Uh, as, as of the Apostle John as they oversaw and pastored this church there. And so this very first letter that we see addressed to the Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, Ephesus is specifically addressed to the church in Ephesus, um, to the angel of the church of Ephesus is what we read. And this angel is, is a reference to a messenger, specifically, meaning the pastor of the church, the one who would stand before the church and give the message to the church. We don't know who was the pastor at this time in church history. It doesn't really reveal it to us who took over for John. But it's interesting how Jesus described himself to the Ephesian church, saying, I'm the one. He says, I'm the one who holds the seven stars in my right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And so as Jesus begins, continues on and reveals himself to the church in this way, we read at the end of chapter 1, verse 20, exactly what these seven stars and these seven angels are, if you remember. Chapter 1, verse 20, we're told that the seven stars are the seven angels of the churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. Now, the, the reason why Jesus brings this out now, specifically to the church of Ephesus, is because he's telling them, and he's conveying to us, he's saying, hey, listen, I'm the head of the church. I'm the one who's in charge. He's calling, and, and, and in this, he's calling his leaders, and he's calling the church body itself into this place of accountability. He says, I got you, and I'm holding you accountable. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, it reaffirms to us that Jesus, even today, is the head of the church. He's the one that's in charge. There is no one else ahead of him. And, 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 and it says in verse 18 of Colossians 1, it says, He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, Jesus, might have the preeminence, that place of first in the church. So the picture of Jesus holding his pastor, the, the, the pastor specifically in his hand, illustrates this fact for us that God is the one who is ultimately in, in charge and in control. And, and, you know, this is a comforting thing, not only for me, but it should be for you to go, I'm glad Sean's not in charge. 
Because it's God who's leading us. Jesus is the head. He's the one that we follow. And, 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 and it's just like in a marriage relationship. It's a lot easier for the wife to fulfill, fulfill her role in helpmate and submitting to her husband if she knows that her husband realizes that God's the one in control. God's the one that he's following. God's the one that he's submitting to. Because she goes, listen, I couldn't submit to you. You're a knucklehead, but I can submit to God, right? And we are knuckleheads, guys. But the comforting thing is, is that we're following God. That's creating an environment for our wives to be able to fulfill their call as the wife. And likewise within the church, I'm a knucklehead, but I'm following God. He's the one who's in charge. He's the one I'm submitting to. So as he leads the church, it's, it's, it's me going, God, where do you want to go? It's the elders of the church going, is this the right way? As we seek the word of God, as we pray together, and he's in charge. Now as we see this, we also see that Jesus is holding these things, the pastors, in his right hand. Significance. Because the right hand always represents power. It always represents authority. And it's illustrating for us that God's the one who will hold the pastor accountable for what he says and what he does with God's people. That scares me. And it should scare any person who fulfills that role of spiritual leader. God will hold you accountable. He says he's going to hold you accountable. He promises to hold you accountable. Remember, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, it makes it clear that the pastor is responsible. There's things he's responsible for. Specifically, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, the pastor is responsible for equipping the saints for the work of the ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ. And, and whenever there is a responsibility, we know that there's what? Accountability. Accountability. But in addition to holding the pastor, the messenger, responsible, Jesus, who... <laughs> is pictured here, he tells us that he's also holding the lampstands, which we're clearly told back in chapter 1, is the church. He's also holding the church in his hands. And in doing so, he's holding each member of the church individually and also personally responsible for our own behavior and for our witness of him. In short, Jesus wanted the Ephesians, the church there, to know that he's in charge. That's what he's saying. That's what he's telling them. Hey, listen, I'm in charge. I'm in control. And also that he's also letting them know that he's intimately aware of what was really going on in the church. Their works, their failings, and as the head, as, as the one who was in charge, he was going to deal with them justly because he knew the truth. He's going to deal with them fairly. And this knowledge of Jesus holding his leaders in his hand and walking among his church, you know, it should be a comforting thing. It should really be an exciting thing for us, even again this morning as we gather together, because it reminds us that Jesus is watching over us individually and corporately. And this world is growing more and more against us every single day simply because we love Jesus. But he says, hey, you know what? I'm watching over you. I'm caring for you. It points out the fact that Jesus is with us. And not only that, but he wants to be with us. This is where he wants to be, with us. And this is important to remember because every time we gather together, we need to be conscious, aware of the fact that Jesus is with us. And we need to be looking expectantly for him to reveal himself to us. The point is, Jesus is our leader. Jesus is our protector. He is our provider. And if he is not here with us, even this morning, now, you know what? Then there's no reason for us to gather together. None. 
We might as well close the doors and go home because Jesus is the one who we worship. Jesus is the one that we need to hear from. It's all about Jesus. And to have him meeting with us and to have him holding on to us and to have him walking among us as he says he is with the church here in Ephesus and is today, it's a wonderful thing. It's an awesome blessing to listen to and apply to our lives. In verse 2, Jesus goes on. He speaks to the church after he's telling them, listen, I got you. I have you. He says, I know your works. Your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and found them to be liars. Now, in these verses is the praise. It's the commendation. Jesus says you're doing good. These are the things you're doing good in. It's the good stuff. And as we break these things down, I want you to see that there are four specific traits within the Ephesus church. That Jesus commends them for. And first Jesus says to him, I know your works. Your labor, and from this we see that the church in Ephesus was a service-oriented church. They just didn't come to church and sit around and do nothing. They gathered together as a church, not only for fellowship, but to serve God, to do His works. And apparently, they were busy doing the works of the Lord. In fact, we are told, <coughs> as it's being described here, it says that they labored in doing them. And this literally means that they toiled to the point of exhaustion when doing good works. In other words, they kept doing the good things of God that had been set before them, even when doing the good thing was a tough thing to do. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians after he had left, had previously written to the church there and said to them in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he said, hey, listen, guys, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for... Good works, which God prepared beforehand, he said, that we should walk in them. And apparently they had received this admonishment from Paul, this encouragement from Paul, because this is what they had done. And Jesus noticed. He said, I see your works. And here is no doubt that good works, in light of this, that their good works are a large part of following after Jesus as we wait here for his return. And, and, and for each one of us, there are good things that God has appointed for us, good things that God has provided for each one of us to be able to do. He's appointed and he provided, and so we serve him with what he's appointed us to do and provided for us to do it with. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says that, that we, as his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand. What's our job? Apostle Paul says, just to walk in them. Just to go, here I am, send me. Here I am. And in light of this, the truth is God has blessed each one of us, many of us in various differing ways. <clears throat> and has given us both material gifts, material things, and he's given us spiritual things, spiritual gifts, so that we might in turn give for God and serve for God those whom he puts in our paths. You see, the truth is, is, if we're not allowing for the spiritual gifts that God has given to us, that are things that he's done in us, if we're not allowing for these things to flow through our lives, then we become stagnant. Stagnant in our relationship with Jesus. It's, you've heard this said before, I'm sure. It's like as if water runs into a pond and it's not able to run out 
The pond becomes useless. The water becomes bad. It smells. It stinks. It putrefies. In fact, stagnant water becomes contaminated with bacteria. And anyone who drinks a bacteria-filled stagnant pond, they're going to get sick. They won't become spiritually healthy. They'll become sick. You know what? And if we're like this, we won't be spiritual blessing to anyone. We, we, will be a, uh, we won't be a blessing to those around us. Now, the second thing that Jesus praises the Ephesians for in verse 3, if you look, is for their patience. He said, and you have persevered, and if you, have, and you have patience. And this was something that Jesus commended them for, having patience. They had not become weary, he said. And the Bible often illustrates those who follow Jesus. We know even we look at this and consider ourselves to be pilgrims, sojourners upon this earth. Those who are just passing through, citizens of a heavy, heavenly kingdom, who are heading on to the next through this life. And the Apostle Paul often said that this spiritual journey that we are on, he says it's like a race. Doesn't he? Many times Paul illustrates this journey we're on like a race. However, we need to understand as we look at this commendation about the, the church here in Ephesus not growing weary, about having patience, we need to understand that this race that we are in, which by the way has a finish line, which by the way has an eternal prize, it's not a sprint. We're not sprinters. Rather, we're marathoners. We, we're, we're, this race we're in is like a marathon. And there's, there's a need for us to endure. There's a need for us to persevere, to continue on in order to make it to the finish line and to receive the rewards that our Father has stored up that is waiting for us as we cross into the next life. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36, it says this. It says, For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. We have a need of endurance. Also in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, it says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Apparently, the church in Ephesus had endurance. They were marathoners. They wouldn't give up when things got hard. And Jesus noticed this. He said, I see this. You've not grown weary. And what they faced a, when they faced a trial, they did not throw in the towel and say, I give up. It's not worth it. And it is our human nature. It's our tendency to want to do this. Sadly, are there many people who give up when things get hard or when they encounter afflictions for their belief. But we cannot give up when things get hard. Therefore, we must understand that being a Christian is not something that we are trying out. It is not something that we do. Being a Christian is not these things. Being a Christian is who we are. So no matter what difficult we go, difficulties we go through, we as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we've got to look to eternity keeping our eyes on the finish line as we live for Jesus today. And we, like the Ephesians, we have to persevere. We have to have patience. The next thing we read here is that Jesus commended them for, he commended them also for their right attitude against evil. 
They were committed to purity. They stood against the things that Jesus stands against. They were for what he was for. They did not endure with those who were evil. They were the type of fellowship who would enact church discipline. And if necessary, they, if there was sin in the camp, they did not ignore it. They dealt with it. If there was something going on in the church that was not of God, they did not simply close their eyes to it. Rather, instead, they immediately dealt with it. Sadly, this is something that doesn't take place very often at all within the church today, and it's not because the church is all of a sudden filled with holy, sinless people. In verse 6, we're also told that one of the things that they dealt with which had made their way into the early church was the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And the word, this word Nicolaitan literally means the overcoming of the people and it was a reference to the hierarchy of, a, of clergy that takes place in many churches still today and where one man and those under him just seek to rule over others. And, and with this came the idea that a person had to go through an earthly priest and not through Jesus who is the ultimate priest in order to commune with God. The church of Ephesus hated this and they would not bear with those who were doing these kinds of evil things or any other evil thing. In addition to having a right attitude towards evil, they also had a desire for the truth. And these guys had it going on. This is a church I would want to go to. They would expose and reject false teachers. They did not put up with those who would come into their fellowship and teach something that was not in accordance to the word of God. In fact, they did not believe someone just because they came and quoted Scripture. They were like the Bereans. They were those who tested what was being said with the whole counsel of the Word of God and kept it in its proper context. Equally, it's important for all of us today to be watchful of those who are not teaching the truth. Those who are trying to lead us and the people of God astray. Those whom God has entrusted to our care. The early church had false teachers. Just like we have false teachers today. And Apostle Paul was constantly warning these churches, including Ephesians, to be aware of them. And as we look back to Acts chapter 20, we read him personally warning the Ephesians about false teachers. And in verses 29 through 30, we know that Paul on his way back to Jerusalem made an opportunity to call the Ephesian elders to them. And he said, listen, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. This is to the elders of the church in Ephesus. He said, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And again, apparently the Ephesians, having received this admonishment, this warning, they took it and did something with it. They heeded Paul's words of warning. They had effectively exposed false teachers for the liars that they were. So, on the surface, at first look, the church of Ephesus appeared to have many things, if not everything, right however jesus who is able to see into the heart went on to say in verse four nevertheless this i have against you that you've left your first love wow so in spite of all of the good things that they were doing there were some very things some things that were very something that was very wrong and Jesus here bluntly rebuked them for what he had seen. Notice that Jesus said that they had left their first love, not that they had lost their first love. They had simply moved away from the most important thing, and that was their relationship with Jesus. In doing so, they identified themselves. Listen, because we can fall into this. They identified themselves. Oh, this is so, 
such an easy thing to fall into. They identified themselves by what they did and not by whom they knew. Do we do this? At times, yes. And without a love relationship for Jesus, you know what they were left with? A dead religion. Literally, dead works. Not a life-giving relationship. And without a doubt, what we do for God is important, but more importantly than what we do is why we do what we do. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote about this to the Christians in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1-3. through 3, And he said, even though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, he says, I just become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And although I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and even though I have all faith, Faith so that I could remove a mountain, but have not love, so nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but not have not love, it profits me nothing. This was the Ephesians. They were, they were in a bad place, and, and, and love is so important because the very purpose of the church is, is to share Jesus with broken people and to demonstrate the love that God has for them. We're those tools. We're that vessel that people can come to know the great and awesome, wonderful love of God. But without love, without a real love relationship with Jesus, individually, purposefully, individually and, and, and personally as well as corporately as a church. You know, if we don't have this love relationship, you know what, none of these things will, will happen no matter how many programs we have, no matter how many activities we do, it's not going to profit anything. Now, usually when we have left our first love, it's because we've begun to love something else, right? Think about it. We leave our first love because we go to love something, something else, Idols, which can be a person or a thing or an activity. In other words, anything that becomes more important to us than God. However, Jesus says that when we realize that we have fallen, there's something that we need to do. Verse 5, it says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. First step, remember where you have fallen from. Remember that first love. And in this verse, there's really a three-fold plan that we're given, right? Remember being the first. Remember that first love. Where would that first love first manifest itself to us? On the cross. Came to the cross of Jesus Christ and we were no longer offended because we found the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. Return to the cross. Return to the grace. Recur, return to the forgiveness, the freedom, the hope, the joy, the redemption that we have received. This is what we remember. Then we repent. Turn around. Head the other direction. Stop pursuing something or someone that has taken the place in our life that Jesus alone deserves. And the fact of the matter is, is you know what? We can run. Here's the encouraging thing. We can run a great distance from God for a long time, but thankfully, you know what? It only takes one step to return to him. If you're in that place this morning, return. Remember and repent and, 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 and take that step. Return to him. However, we must be willing to turn away from the things that we have given our love over to. It's not sharing. It's going, getting rid of this and putting Jesus back in the place that he deserves. And the way that we do that is through this third step. <clears throat> the Bible says we return and we do the first work. What was the first work? 
What must I do to do the works of Christ, his apostles asked. To do the work of God. What did he say? Believe. Believe. Come to Jesus. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. Rely upon Him. Cling to Him. Spend time with Him. You know, we can spend, spend much time in God's Word preparing ourselves and studying and, and, and giving ourselves over to the call. Much time in prayer for other people. But you know what? We must first seek God for ourselves. Is that what we're told? Even in, in all things. Seek first God, the kingdom of God. Seek God and His righteousness. And what? Everything else will be added to us. We'll end with this if the worship team wants to come up. He says, verse 6, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the overcomer. I will give to you to eat the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Here's the last section, the last thing of these seven divisions. And it's a promise to, over, to the overcomer. A promise to eat of the tree of life. This is the very tree that was in the Garden of Eden that we had been shut out from. Man had been shut out from after we had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the reason why we were shut out is because God did not want us to live forever in this fallen state. We'd be, you know, truly the zombie apocalypse, right? Our body parts would be falling off. But there is coming a time when we go and the corruptible is put off, and incorruption is put on, and to he is the overcomer. We will eat from the tree of life. <coughs> and it will be given back to us when there is a new heaven and when there is a new earth. This is what we read in Revelation chapter 2, verse, in chapter 22, verse 2. And I want to close with this this morning. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, it tells us this. It says, For whatever is born of God, he is the one who overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith in Jesus. And he, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This morning I would encourage you to do this first work. To remember. To repent. To return. To believe. To trust in. To rely upon. To cling to. Don't put your faith in anything other than Jesus. Because he alone is the only one who is worthy of our love. Worthy of our faith. Father, thank you.